All right, we have made it. We are on to the final chapters of Tarzan of the Apes. I hope you guys have enjoyed this book. If so, let me know. I want to hear from you guys. I want to hear what book you want to hear next. So get in touch with me. All the links are in the show notes. So without further ado, I give you the final chapters of Tarzan. Chapter 27. The Giant Again. A taxicab drew up before an old-fashioned residence upon the outskirts of Baltimore. A man of about forty, well-built and with strong, regular features, stepped out, and, paying the chauffeur, dismissed him. A moment later, the passenger was entering the library of the old home. "'Ah, Mr. Canler!' exclaimed an old man, rising to greet him. "'Good evening, my dear professor,' cried the man, extending a cordial hand. "'Who admitted you?' asked the professor. "'Esmeralda.' "'Then she will acquaint Jane with the fact that you are here,' said the old man. "'No, Professor,' replied Candler, "'for I came primarily to see you.' "'Ah, I am honoured,' said Professor Porter. "'Professor,' continued Robert Candler, with great deliberation, as though carefully weighing his words, "'I have come this evening to speak with you about Jane. You know my aspirations, and you have been generous enough to approve my suit.' Professor Archimedes Q. Porter fidgeted in his armchair. The subject always made him uncomfortable. He could not understand why. Canna was a splendid match. "'But Jane,' continued Canna, "'I cannot understand her. She puts off first on one ground and then another. I have always the feeling that she breathes a sigh of relief every time I bid her good-bye.' "'Tut, tut,' said Professor Porter. "'Tut, tut, Mr. Canna. Jane is a most obedient daughter. She will do precisely as I tell her.' "'Then I can still count on your support?' asked Candler, a tone of relief marking his voice. "'Certainly, sir. Certainly, sir,' exclaimed Professor Porter. "'How could you doubt it?' "'There is young Clayton, you know,' suggested Candler. "'He's been hanging about for months. I don't know that Jane cares for him. But besides his title, they say he has inherited a very considerable estate from his father, and it might not be strange if he finally won her unless—' And Candler paused. "'Tut, Mr. Canner, and this what?' "'Unless you see fit to request that Jane and I be married at once,' said Canler slowly and distinctly. "'I have already suggested to Jane that it would be desirable,' said Professor Porter sadly. "'But we can no longer afford to keep up this house and live as her associations demand.' "'What was her reply?' asked Canler. "'She said she was not ready to marry anyone yet,' replied Professor Porter. "'and that we could go and live upon the farm in northern Wisconsin in which her mother left her. "'It is a little more than self-supporting. "'The tenants have always made a living from it, "'and been able to send Jane a trifle beside each year. "'She is planning on going up there the first of the week. "'Philander and Mr. Clayton have already gone to get things in readiness for us.' "'Clayton is gone there!' exclaimed Candler, visibly chagrined. "'Why, well, was not I told. "'I would gladly have gone and seen that every comfort was provided.' "'Jane feels that we are already too much in your debt, Mr. Candler," said Professor Porter. Candler was about to reply when the sound of footsteps came from the hall without, and Jane entered the room. "'Oh, I beg your pardon,' she exclaimed, pausing on the threshold. "'I thought you were alone, Papa.' "'It is only I, Jane,' said Candler, who had risen. "'Won't you come in and join the family group? We were just speaking of you.' "'Thank you.' said Jane, entering and taking the chair Candler placed for her. "'I only wanted to tell Papa that Toby is coming down from the college tomorrow to pack his books. 
I want you to be sure, Papa, to indicate all that you can do without until fall. Please don't carry this entire library to Wisconsin, as you would have carried it to Africa if I had not put my foot down. Was Toby here? asked Professor Porter. Yes, I just left him. He and Esmeralda are exchanging religious experiences on the back porch now. Tut, tut, I must see him at once, cried the professor. Excuse me just a moment, children. And the old man hastened from the room. As soon as he was out of earshot, Candler turned to Jane. See here, Jane, he said bluntly. How long has this thing gone on like this? You haven't refused to marry me, but you haven't promised either. I want to get the license tomorrow so that we can be married quietly before you leave for Wisconsin. I don't care for any fuss or feathers, and I'm sure you don't either. The girl turned cold, but she held her head bravely. Your father wishes it, you know, added Candler. Yes, I know. She spoke scarcely above a whisper. Do you realize that you are buying me, Mr. Candler? She said finally, and in a cold, level voice. Buying me for a few paltry dollars. Of course you do, Robert Candler, and the hope of just such a contingency was in your mind when you loaned Papa the money for that harebrained escapade, which but for a most mysterious circumstance would have been surprisingly successful. But you, Mr. Candler, you would have been most surprised. You had no idea that such a venture would succeed. You were too good a businessman for that, and you were too good a businessman to loan money for buried treasure-seeking or to loan money without security, unless you had some special object in view. You knew that without security you had a greater hold on the honour of the porters than with it. You knew the one best way to force me to marry you without seeming to force me. You have never mentioned the loan, and any other man I would have thought that the prompting of a magnanimous and noble character. But you are deep, Mr. Robert Candler. I know you better than you think I know you. I shall certainly marry you if there is no other way. But let us understand each other once and for all. While she spoke, Robert Candler had alternately flushed and paled, and when she ceased speaking he arose, and, with a cynical smile upon his strong face, said, "'You surprise me, Jane.' I thought you had more self-control, more pride. Of course you were right. I am buying you, and I knew that you knew it, but I thought you would prefer to pretend that it was otherwise. I should have thought your self-respect and your portal pride would have shrunk from admitting, even to yourself, that you were a bought woman. And have it your way, dear girl, he added lightly. I am going to have you, and that is all that interests me. Without a word, the girl turned and left the room. Jane was not married before she left with her father in Esmeralda for her little Wisconsin farm, and, as she coldly bid Robert Candler goodbye as a train pulled out, he called to her that he would join them in a week or two. At their destination, they were met by Clayton and Mr. Philander in a huge touring car belonging to the former, and quickly whirled away through the dense northern woods toward the little farm which the girl had not visited before since childhood. The farmhouse, which stood on a little elevation some hundred yards from the tenant-house, had undergone a complete transformation through the three weeks that Clayton and Mr. Philander had been there. The former had imported a small army of carpenters and plasterers, plumbers and painters, from a distant city, and what had been but a dilapidated shell when they reached it was now a cosy little two-story house filled with every modern convenience procurable in so short a time. "'Why, Mr. Clayton, what have you done?' cried Jane Porter, her heart sinking within her as she realized the probable size of the expenditure that had been made. "'Shh!' cautioned Clayton. "'Don't let your father guess. If you don't tell him, he will never notice, and I simply couldn't think of him living in the terrible squalor and sordidness which Mr. Philander and I found it. It was so little, and I would like to do so much, Jane. For his sake, please, never mention it.' 
But you know that we cannot repay you, cried the girl. Why do you want to put me under such a terrible obligation? Don't, Jane, said Clayton sadly. If it had been just you, believe me, I wouldn't have done it, for I knew from the start that it would only hurt me in your eyes, and I couldn't think of that dear old man living in the hole we found here. Won't you please believe me that I did it just for him, and give me that little crumb of pleasure at least? I do believe you, Mr. Clayton, said the girl, because I know that you are big enough and generous enough to have done it just for him, and, oh, Cecil, I wish I might repay you as you deserve, as you would wish. Why can't you, Jane? Because I love another. Can I? No. But you were going to marry him. He told me as much before I left Baltimore. The girl winced. I do not love him, she said, almost proudly. Is it because of the money, Jane? She nodded. Then am I so much less desirable than Candler? I have money enough, and far more, for every need, he said bitterly. I do not love you, Cecil, she said, but I respect you. If I must disgrace myself by such a bargain with any man, I prefer that it be one I already despise. I should loathe the man to whom I sold myself without love, whomsoever he might be. You will be happier, she concluded. Alone, with my respect and friendship, and with me and my contempt. He did not press the matter further. But if ever a man had murder in his heart, it was William Cecil Clayton, Lord Greystoke, when a week later, Robert Candler drew up before the farmhouse in his purring six-cylinder. A week passed, a tense, uneventful, but uncomfortable week, for all the inmates of the little Wisconsin farmhouse. Candler was insistent that Jane marry him at once. At length, she gave in from sheer loathing of the continued and hateful importuning. It was agreed that on the morrow, Candler was to drive to town and bring back a license and a minister. Clayton had wanted to leave as soon as the plan was announced, but the girl's tired, hopeless look kept him. He could not desert her. Something might happen yet, he tried to console himself by thinking, and in his heart he knew that it would require but a tiny spark to turn his hatred for Candler into the bloodlust of a killer. Early the next morning, Candler set out for town. In the east, smoke could be seen lying low over the forest— for a fire had been raging for a week not far from them, but the wind still lay in the west, and no danger threatened them. About noon, Jane started off for a walk. She would not let Clayton accompany her. She wanted to be alone, she said, and he respected her wishes. In the house, Professor Porter and Mr. Philander were immersed in an absorbing discussion of some weighty scientific problem. Esmeralda dozed in the kitchen, and Clayton, heavy-eyed after a sleepless night, threw himself down upon the couch in the living room and soon dropped into a fitful slumber. To the east, the black smoke clouds rose higher into the heavens. Suddenly, they eddied, and then commenced to drift rapidly toward the west. On and on they came. The inmates of the tenant house were gone, for it was market day, and none was there to see the rapid approach of the fiery demon. Soon the flames had spanned the road to the south and cut off Candler's return. A little fluctuation of the wind now carried the path of the forest fire to the north, then blew back, and the flames nearly stood still, as though held in leash by some master hand. Suddenly, out of the northeast, a great black car came careening down the road. With a jolt, it stopped before the cottage, and a black-haired giant leaped out to run up onto the porch. Without a pause, he rushed into the house. On the couch lay Clayton. The man started in surprise, but with a bound was at the side of the sleeping man. Shaking him roughly by the shoulder, he cried, 
My God, Clayton, are you all mad here? Don't you know that you are nearly surrounded by fire? Where is Miss Porter? Clayton sprang to his feet. He did not recognize the man, but he understood the words and was upon the veranda in a bound. Scott! he cried, and then, dashing back into the house, Jane! Jane, where are you? In an instant, Esmeralda, Professor Porter, and Mr. Philander had joined the two men. Where is Miss Jane? cried Clayton, seizing Esmeralda by the shoulders and shaking her roughly. Oh, Gabriel, Mr. Clayton, she done gone for a walk. Hasn't she come back yet? And, without waiting for a reply, Clayton dashed out into the yard, followed by the others. Which way did she go? cried the black-haired giant to Esmeralda. Down that road, cried the frightened woman, pointing toward the south, where a mighty wall of roaring flames shut out the view. Put these people in the other car, shouted the stranger to Clayton. I saw one as I drove up, and get them out of here by the north road. Leave my car here. If I find Miss Porter, we shall need it. If I don't, no one will need it. Do as I say. As Clayton hesitated, and then they saw the lithe figure bound away across the clearing, toward the northwest, where the forest stood still, untouched by flame. In each rose the unaccountable feeling that a great responsibility had been raised from their shoulders, a kind of implicit confidence in the power of the stranger to save Jane if she could be saved. Oh, who was that? asked Professor Porter. I do not know, replied Clayton. He called me by name, and he knew Jane, for he asked for her, and he called Esmeralda by name. There was something startling familiar about him, exclaimed Mr. Philander. And yet, bless me, I know I never saw him before. Tut, tut, cried Professor Porter. Mr. Markable, who could it have been, and why do I feel that Jane is safe now that he has set out in search of her? I cannot tell you, Professor, said Clayton soberly. But I know I have the same uncanny feeling. But come, he cried, we must get out of here ourselves or we shall be shut off. And the party hastened toward Clayton's car. When Jane turned to retrace her steps homeward, she was alarmed to note how near the smoke of the forest fire seemed, and as she hastened onward, her alarm became almost a panic when she perceived that the rushing flames were rapidly forcing their way between herself and the cottage. At length she was compelled to turn into the dense thicket and attempt to force her way to the west in an effort to circle around the flame and reach the house. In a short time, the futility of her attempt became apparent, and then her one hope lay in retracing her steps to the road and flying for her life to the south toward the town. The twenty minutes that it took her to regain the road was all that had been needed to cut off her retreat as effectually as her advance had cut it off before. A short run down the road brought her to a horrified stand, for there before her was another wall of flame. An arm of the main conflagration had shot out a half-mile south of his parent to embrace this tiny strip of road in its implacable clutches. Jane knew that it was useless to attempt to force her way through the undergrowth. She had tried it once and failed. Now she realized that it would be but a matter of minutes ere the whole space between the north and the south would be a seething mass of billowing flames. Calmly, the girl kneeled down in the dust of the roadway and prayed for strength to meet her fate, bravely, and for the delivery of her father and her friends from death. Suddenly, she heard her name being called aloud through the forest. "'Jane! Jane Porter!' It rang strong and clear, but in a strange voice. Here, she called in reply. Here, in the roadway. Then, through the branches of the trees, she saw a figure swinging with the speed of a squirrel. A veering of the wind blew a cloud of smoke about them, and she could no longer see the man who was speeding toward her, but suddenly she felt a great arm about her. Then she was lifted up, 
and she felt the rushing of the wind and the occasional brush of a branch as she was borne along. She opened her eyes. Far below her lay the undergrowth of the hard earth. About her was the waving foliage of the forest. From tree to tree swung the giant figure which bore her, and it seemed to Jane that she was living over in a dream the experience that had been hers in that far African jungle. Oh, if it were but the same man who had borne her so swiftly through the tangled verdure on that other day, but that was impossible. Yet who else in all the world was there, with the strength and agility, to do what this man was now doing? She stole a sudden glance at the face close to hers, and then she gave a frightened little gasp. It was he. My forest man, she murmured. Now I must be delirious. Yes, you are man, Jane Porter. Your savage, primeval man came out of the jungle to claim his mate, the woman who ran away from him. He added almost fiercely. I did not run away, she whispered. I would only consent to leave when we had waited a week for you to return. They had come to a point beyond the fire now, and he had turned back to the clearing. Side by side, they were walking toward the cottage. The wind had changed once more, and the fire was turning back upon itself. Another hour like that, and it would be burned out. Why did you not return? she asked. I was nursing Dale not. He was badly wounded. I knew it! she exclaimed. They said you had gone to join the blacks, that they were your people. He laughed. But you do not believe them, Jane? No. What shall I call you? she asked. What is your name? I was Tarzan of the Apes when you first knew me, he said. Tarzan of the Apes? she cried. And that was your note I answered when I left? Yes. Whose did you think it was? I do not know. Only that it could not be yours, for Tarzan of the Apes was written in English, and you could not understand a word of any language. Again he laughed. It is a long story, but it was I who wrote what I could not speak, and now Delnot has made matters worse by teaching me to speak French instead of English. Come, he added, jump into my car. We must overtake your father. They are only a little way ahead. As they drove along, he said, then, when you said in your note to Tarzan of the Apes that you loved another, you might have meant me? I might have, she answered simply. But in Baltimore, oh, I searched for you. They told me you would possibly be married by now, that a man named Candler had come up here to wed you. Is that true? Yes. Do you love him? No. Do you love me? She buried her face in her hands. I am promised to another. I cannot answer you, Tarzan of the Apes, she cried. You have answered. Now, tell me why you would marry one you do not love. My father owes him money. Suddenly, there came back to Tarzan the memory of the letter he had read, and the name, Robert Candler, and the hinted trouble which he had been unable to understand then. He smiled. If your father had not lost the treasure, you would not feel forced to keep your promise to this man, Candler? I could ask him to release me. And if he refused? I have given my promise. He was silent for a moment. The car was plunging along the uneven road at a reckless pace, for the fire showed threateningly at their right, and another change of the wind might sweep it on with raging fury across his one avenue of escape.
Finally, they passed the danger point, and Tarzan reduced their speed. Suppose I should ask him, ventured Tarzan. He would scarcely accede to the demand of a stranger, said the girl, especially one who wanted me to himself. Turkos did, said Tarzan grimly. Jane shuddered and looked fearfully up at the giant figure beside her, for she knew that he meant the great anthropoid he had killed in her defense. This is not the African jungle, she said. You are no longer a savage beast. You are a gentleman, and gentlemen do not kill in cold blood. I'm still a wild beast at heart, he said in a low voice, as though to himself. Again they were silent for a time. Jane, said the man at length, if you were free, would you marry me? She did not reply at once, but he waited patiently. The girl was trying to collect her thoughts. What did she know of this strange creature at her side? What did he know of himself? Who was he? Who? His parents? Why, his very name echoed his mysterious origin in his savage life. He had no name. Could she be happy with this jungle waif? Could she find anything in common with a husband whose life had been spent in the treetops of an African wilderness, frolicking and fighting with fierce anthropoids, tearing his food from the quivering flank of fresh-killed prey, sinking his strong teeth into raw flesh, and tearing away his portion while his mates growled and fought about him for their share? Could he ever rise to her social sphere? Could she bear to think of sinking to his? Would either be happy in such a horrible misalliance? You do not answer he said. Do you shrink from wounding me? I do not know what answer to make, said Jane sadly. I do not know my own mind. You do not love me, then? he asked in a level tone. Do not ask me. You will be happier without me. You were never meant for the formal restrictions and conventionalities of society. Civilization would become irksome to you, and in a little while you would long for the freedom of your old life— a life to which I am as totally unfitted as you to mine. I think I understand you, he replied quietly. I shall not urge you, for I would rather see you happy than to be happy myself. I see now that you could not be happy with an ape. There was just the faintest tinge of bitterness in his voice. Don't, she remonstrated. Don't say that. You do not understand. But before she could go on, a sudden turn in the road brought them into the midst of a little hamlet. Before them stood Clayton's car, surrounded by the party he had brought from the cottage. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 28. Conclusion At the sight of Jane, cries of relief and delight broke from every lip, and as Tarzan's car stopped beside the other, Professor Porter caught his daughter in his arms. For a moment, no one noticed Tarzan sitting silently in his seat. Clayton was the first to remember, and, turning, held out his hand. "'How can we ever thank you?' he exclaimed. 
"'You have saved us all. "'You called me by name at the cottage, "'but I do not seem to recall yours. "'There there is something very familiar about you. "'It is as though I had known you well "'under very different conditions a long time ago.' "'Tarzan smiled as he took the proffered hand. "'You are quite right, Monsieur Clayton,' he said in French. "'You will pardon me if I do not speak to you in English. "'I am just learning it, and while I understand it fairly well, "'I speak it very poorly.' "'But who are you?' insisted Clayton, speaking in French this time himself. "'Tarzan of the Apes.' Clayton started back in surprise. "'By Jove!' he exclaimed. "'It is true!' And Professor Porter and Mr. Philander pressed forward to add their thanks to Clayton's, and to voice their surprise and pleasure at seeing their jungle friends so far from his savage home. The party now entered the modest little hostelry, where Clayton soon made arrangements for their entertainment— they were sitting in the little stuffy parlour when the distant chugging of an approaching automobile caught their attention. Mr. Philander, who was sitting near the window, looked out as the car drew in sight, finally stopping beside the other automobiles. "'Bless me,' said Mr. Philander, a shade of annoyance in his tone. "'It is Mr. Candler. I had hoped—I uh, thought—how uh, uh, very happy we should be that he was not caught in the fire,' he ended lamely. "'Tut-tut, Mr. Philander,' said Professor Porter. "'Tut-tut. I have often admonished my pupils to count ten before speaking. Were I you, Mr. Philander, I should count at least a thousand, and then maintain a discreet silence.' "'Bless me, yes,' acquiesced Mr. Philander. "'But who is the clerical-appearing gentleman with him?' Jane blanched. Clayton moved uneasily in his chair. Professor Porter removed his spectacles nervously and breathed upon them, but replaced them on his nose without wiping. The ubiquitous Esmeralda grunted. Only Tarzan did not comprehend. Presently, Robert Candler burst into the room. "'Thank God!' he cried. "'I feared the worst until I saw your car, Clayton. I was cut off on the south road and had to go back to town and then strike east to this road. I thought we'd never reach the cottage.' No one seemed to enthuse much. Tarzan eyed Robert Candler as Sabor eyes her prey. Jane glanced at him and coughed nervously. "'Mr. Candler,' she said, "'this is Monsieur Tarzan, an old friend.' Candler turned and extended his hand. Tarzan rose and bowed, as only day or not could have taught a gentleman to do it, but he did not seem to see Candler's hand, nor did Candler appear to notice the oversight. "'This is Reverend Mr. Towsley, Jane.' said Candler, turning to the clerical party behind him. "'Mr. Towsley, Miss Porter.' Mr. Towsley bowed and beamed. Candler introduced him to the others. "'We can have the ceremony at once, Jane,' said Candler. "'Then you and I can catch the midnight train in town.' Tarzan understood the plan instantly. He glanced out of half-closed eyes at Jane, but he did not move. The girl hesitated. The room was tense with the silence of taut nerves." All eyes turned toward Jane, awaiting her reply. "'Can't we wait a few days?' she asked. "'I'm all unstrung. I've been through so much today.' Candler felt the hostility that emanated from each member of the party. It made him angry. "'We have waited as long as I intend to wait,' he said roughly. "'You have promised to marry me, and I shall be played with no longer. I have the license, and here is the preacher. Come, Mr. Towsley. Come, Jane.' There are plenty of witnesses, more than enough. He added with a disagreeable inflection, and taking Jane Porter by the arm, he started to lead her toward the waiting minister. 
but scarcely had he taken a single step ere a heavy hand closed upon his arm with a grip of steel. Another hand shot to his throat, and in a moment he was being shaken high above the floor, as a cat might shake a mouse. Jane turned in horrified surprise toward Tarzan, and, as she looked into his face, she saw the crimson band upon his forehead that she had seen that other day in far distant Africa when Tarzan of the Apes had closed in mortal combat with the great anthropoid Turkos. She knew that murder lay in that savage heart, and with a little cry of horror she sprang forward to plead with the ape-man, but her fears were more for Tarzan than for Kanla. She realized the stern retribution which justice meets to the murderer. But before she could reach them, however, Clayton had jumped to Tarzan's side and attempted to drag Kanla from his grasp. With a single sweep of one mighty arm, the Englishman was hurled across the room, and then Jane laid a firm white hand upon Tarzan's wrist and looked up into his eyes. "'For my sake,' she said. The grasp upon Kanla's throat relaxed. Tarzan looked down into the beautiful face before him. "'Do you wish this to live?' he asked in surprise. "'I do not wish him to die at your hands, my friend,' she replied. "'I do not wish you to become a murderer.' Tarzan removed his hand from Kanla's throat. "'Do you release her from her promise?' he asked. "'It is the price of your life.' Kanla, gasping for breath, nodded. Will you go away and never molest her further? Again, the man nodded his head, his face distorted by fear of the death that had been so close. Tarzan released him, and Kanla staggered toward the door. In another moment he was gone, and the terror-stricken preacher with him. Tarzan turned toward Jane. May I speak with you for a moment, alone? he asked. The girl nodded and started toward the door leading toward the narrow veranda of the little hotel. She passed out to await Tarzan, and so did not hear the conversation which followed. "'Wait!' cried Professor Porter as Tarzan was about to follow. The professor had been stricken dumb with surprise by the rapid developments of the past few minutes. "'Before we go further, sir, I should like an explanation of the events which have just transpired. By what right, sir, do you interfere between my daughter and Mr. Candler? I had promised him her hand, sir, and regardless of our personal likes or dislikes, sir, that promise must be kept.' "'I interfered, Professor Porter,' replied Tarzan. "'Because your daughter does not love Mr. Candler, she does not wish to marry him. That is enough for me to know.' "'You do not know what you have done.' said Professor Porter. Now he will doubtless refuse to marry her. He most certainly will, said Tarzan emphatically. And further, added Tarzan, you need not fear that your pride will suffer, Professor Porter, for you will be able to pay the Candler person what you owe him the moment you reach home. Tut, tut, sir, exclaimed Professor Porter. What do you mean, sir? Your treasure has been found, said Tarzan. What? Oh, what is it that you are saying? cried the professor. You are a madman. It cannot be. It is, though. It was I who stole it, not knowing either its value or to whom it belonged. I saw the sailors bury it, and, ape-like, I had to dig it up and bury it again elsewhere. When Deonot told me what it was and what it meant to you, I returned to the jungle and recovered it. It had caused so much crime and suffering and sorrow that Deonot thought it best not to attempt to bring the treasure itself on here, as had been my intention so I had brought a letter of credit instead. Here it is, Professor Porter. And Tarzan drew an envelope from his pocket and handed it to the astonished professor. Two hundred and forty-one thousand dollars. 
The treasure was most carefully appraised by experts. Unless there should be any question in your mind, Dernot himself bought it and is holding it for you, should you prefer the treasure to the credit. To the already great burden of the obligations we owe you, sir, said Professor Porter with trembling voice, is now added this greatest of all services. You have given me the means to save my honor. Clayton, who had left the room a moment after Canler, now returned. Pardon me, he said. I think we had better try to reach town before dark and take the first train out of this forest. A native just rode by from the north, who reports that the fire is moving slowly in this direction. This announcement broke up further conversation, and the entire party went out to the waiting automobiles. Clayton, with Jane, the professor, and Esmeralda occupied Clayton's car, while Tarzan took Mr. Philander with him. Bless me! exclaimed Mr. Philander, as the car moved off after Clayton. Who would have ever thought it possible? The last time I saw you, you were a veritable wild man, skipping about among the branches of a tropical African forest, and now you are driving me along a Wisconsin road in a French automobile. Bless me, but it is most remarkable. Yes, assented Tarzan, and then, after a pause, Mr. Philander, do you recall any of the details of the finding and bearing of three skeletons found in my cabin beside that African jungle? Very distinctly, sir, very distinctly, replied Mr. Philander. Was there anything peculiar about any of those skeletons? Mr. Philander eyed Tarzan narrowly. Why do you ask? It means a great deal to me to know, replied Tarzan. Your answer may clear up a mystery. It can do no worse, at any rate, than to leave it still a mystery. I have been entertaining a theory concerning those skeletons for the past two months, and I want you to answer my question to the best of your knowledge. Were the three skeletons you buried all human skeletons? No, said Mr. Philander. The smallest one, the one found in the crib, was the skeleton of an anthropoid ape. Thank you, said Tarzan. In the car ahead, Jane was thinking fast and furiously. She had felt the purpose for which Tarzan had asked a few words with her, and she knew that she must be prepared to give him an answer in the very near future. He was not the sort of person one could put off, and somehow that very thought made her wonder if she did not really fear him. And could she love where she feared? She realized the spell that had been upon her in the depths of that far-off jungle, but there was no spell of enchantment now in prosaic Wisconsin. Nor did the immaculate young Frenchman appeal to the primal woman in her, as had the stalwart forest guard. Did she love him? She did not know, now. She glanced at Clayton out of the corner of her eye. Was not here a man trained in the same school of environment in which she had been trained, a man with social position and culture such as she had been taught to consider as the prime essentials to conjugal association? Did not her best judgment point to this young English nobleman, whose love she knew to be the sort a civilized woman should crave, as a logical mate for such as herself? Could she love Clayton? She could see no reason why she could not. Jane was not coldly calculating by nature, but training, environment, and heredity had all combined to teach her to reason, even in matters of the heart. That she had been carried off her feet by the strength of the young giant when his great arms were about her in the distant African forest, and again today in the Wisconsin woods, seemed to her only attributable to a temporary mental reversion to type on her part, to the psychological appeal of the primeval man to the primeval woman in her nature. If he should never touch her again, she reasoned, she would never feel attracted toward him. She had not loved him then. It had been nothing more than a passing hallucination, superinduced by excitement and by personal contact. 
Excitement would not always mark their future relations should she marry him, and the power of personal contact eventually would be dulled by familiarity. Again, she glanced at Clayton. He was very handsome, and every inch a gentleman. She should be very proud of such a husband. And then he spoke. A minute sooner, or a minute later, might have made all the difference in the world to three lives. But Chance stepped in, and pointed out to Clayton the psychological moment. "'You are free now, Jane,' he said. "'Won't you say yes? I will devote my life to making you very happy.' "'Yes,' she whispered. "'That evening, in the little waiting-room at the station, "'Tarzan caught Jane alone for a moment. "'You are free now, Jane,' he said, "'and I have come across the ages out of the dim and distant past "'of the lair of primeval man to claim you, "'and for your sake I have become a civilized man. "'For your sake I have crossed oceans and continents. "'For your sake I will be whatever you will me to be. "'I can make you happy, Jane.' in the life you know and love best. Will you marry me? For the first time she realized the depths of the man's love, all that he had accomplished in so short a time solely for love of her. Turning her head, she buried her face in her arms. What had she done? Because she had been afraid she might succumb to the pleas of this giant, she had burned her bridges behind her, in her groundless apprehensions that she might make a terrible mistake, she had made a worse one. And then she told them all, told him the truth word by word, without attempting to shield herself or condone her error. "'What can we do?' he asked. "'You have admitted that you love me. You know that I love you. But I do not know the ethics of society by which you are governed. I shall leave the decision to you, for you know best what will be for your eventual welfare.' "'I cannot tell him, Tarzan,' she said. "'He too loves me, and he is a good man.' I can never face you nor any other honest person if I repudiated my promise to Mr. Clayton. I shall have to keep it, and you must help me bear the burden, though we may not see each other again after tonight. The others were entering the room now, and Tarzan turned toward the little window. But he saw nothing outside. Within, he saw a patch of greensward, surrounded by a matted mass of gorgeous tropical plants and flowers, and, above, the waving foliage of mighty trees, and over all, the blue of an equatorial sky. In the center of the greensward, a young woman sat upon a little mound of earth, and beside her sat a young giant. They ate pleasant fruit, and looked into each other's eyes and smiled. They were very happy, and they were all alone. His thoughts were broken in upon by the station agent, who entered asking if there was a gentleman by the name of Tarzan in the party. "'I am Monsieur Tarzan,' said the ape-man. "'Here's a message for you, forwarded from Baltimore.' It's a cablegram from Paris. Tarzan took the envelope and tore it open. The message was from Deonaut. It read, Fingerprints prove you are Glaystock. Congratulations, Deonaut. As Tarzan finished reading, Clayton entered and came toward him with extended hand. He was the man who had Tarzan's title and Tarzan's estates and was going to marry the woman whom Tarzan loved, the woman who loved Tarzan. A single word from Tarzan would make a great difference in this man's life. It would take away his title and his lands and his castles, and it would take them away from Jane Porter also. "'I say, old man,' cried Clayton, "'I haven't had a chance to thank you for all you have done for us. It seems as though you had your hands full saving our lives in Africa and here. I'm awfully glad you came on here. We must get better acquainted. 
I often thought about you, you know, about the remarkable circumstances of your environment. If it's any of my business, how the devil did you ever get into that bally jungle? I was born there, said Tarzan quietly. My mother was an ape, and of course, she couldn't tell me much about it. I never knew who my father was. The End For the further adventures of Lord Greystoke, read The Return of Tarzan. Alright folks, we have reached the end of Tarzan of the Apes. But don't worry, another World Audiobooks, we are still rocking and still rolling. Remember, if you want the full unabridged version of Tarzan or any of the other audiobooks, you can check out the YouTube channel, or you can check out another World Audiobooks on basically anywhere that you get audiobooks. You can actually purchase them, which is a great way to support the podcast and get you the full unabridged audiobook. We'll be back next week with the start of another awesome audiobook. I can't wait to share with you guys. Stay tuned. We'll catch you next time. Don't worry. You aren't the only one. You aren't the only business that needs help. You aren't the only person that has a hard time finding the right help at the right price. This is where Business Bloodline becomes your bloodline to temporary and permanent staffing. Business Bloodline specializes in hiring internet workers to creatively solve problems for your business. Business Bloodline does all the vetting and only delivers candidates that make sense for your needs and at a cost that you can afford. But 60 seconds isn't enough for me to tell you why hiring through Business Bloodline is safer, cheaper, and less time consuming. We would rather show you. To get more information or a business consultation, visit businessbloodline.com. If the job can be done on a computer, Business Bloodline can find a match. Visit businessbloodline.com and tell them that you heard about it on Another World Audiobooks to get 10% off your first hire. Remember to mention that you heard about it on Another World Audiobooks to get that 10% off. Businessbloodline.com